This is Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NEEDTECH, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Welcome to Transmission Interrupted from NEEDTECH. Hello, and welcome to Transmission Interrupted. I am Jill Morgan from Emory University Hospital in Atlanta. For those of you not yet familiar with NETEC, our mission is to set the gold standard for special pathogen preparedness and response across health systems in the U.S. with the goals of driving best practices, closing knowledge gaps, and developing innovative resources. NETEC works alongside and in cooperation with the CDC and is funded by ASPR, the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response. We're back today to start a new series from NETEC about laboratory science. And today's episode is going to be monkeypox testing in your laboratory. And I'm very happy to have with me Carrie Briard. Carrie comes to us from Spokane, Washington, where she's currently the lab coordinator for special pathogens for Region 10. And that's the HHS region, Health and Human Services region, that includes Washington State, Alaska, Idaho, and Oregon. And Carrie has many years of experience in clinical and point of care and reference labs. We're going to hear more about this whole lab network in just a minute. Welcome, Carrie. Thanks, Jill. I'm very excited to be here and very happy to talk about the lab as it pertains to all these infectious diseases we're seeing. Yeah, we're going to start today off with just a little bit of background, but I think it's a nice, rare treat for clinicians like me, I'm a nurse, to look at the magic that happens behind the curtain for many of us in labs. So I love that for me, I interface with the lab by either collecting specimens myself or sending specimens to the lab. And then it's sort of like putting something into a magic box. It it just goes in there, some period of time happens, and then poof, outcome results. And I'm very grateful for that. I have not had to know a tremendous amount about the lab, but we have some very specific concerns about all these special pathogens and their impact on lab safety and how things are handled and what specimens are collected. So we're going to spend some time talking about that today. I'd like to start with kind of explaining what happens inside that black box and how labs are interconnected. Because I think that's a world I didn't really realize was true until we got into special pathogens care. So Carrie, can you talk a little bit about who the players are with lab safety and then put us in place in the national network of labs? Yeah, so for the laboratory, like you say, you put things in a black box. For us on the lab end, it seems like it comes from a black box because we get the specimen. It's usually most labs, if they're a larger lab, have a pneumonic tube system. The specimen comes to us and it's basically got the patient's name, date of birth, and the test that's being ordered. And we don't see that background on the patient. So there's a lot of things that we don't know about that on the clinician side, of course, they know everything on that end. So it is nice to try and get these to mesh. We have standard precautions that we use for the lab. Every lab does these things where it's basically you don't eat and drink in the laboratory. You don't apply lip balm. You don't chew gum. You don't put your hands to your mouth, things like that. Those are things that we practice all the time to keep us safe from these specimens. We do this through laboratory regulations, laboratory safety We work with in our system to do risk assessments of the laboratory, monitor how people are doing. And of course, we train everyone in the laboratory. You need to have a certain amount of training before you're 
ready to go and ready to do your testing. And so with the different systems in the lab, currently I'm working in a hospital laboratory. We're a fairly large hospital, so we have a very large laboratory. Um, there might be laboratories that see things like the monkeypox patients in clinical laboratories. And that's usually more of a one-room, back-room lab where they'll have a little more exposure to the patient history and everything. You also have things like your public health laboratories that a lot of things are sent from clinics from different areas and they do the testing there. Then there's also the laboratory response network, which is a, they're usually a, a network of labs. They're state, local, public health, veterinary, military, as well as international. And we, they maintain a network of labs that respond to bioterrorism, emerging infections and public health. They're really overseen by the CDC. It started out as a um, collaboration between CDC, APHL, and the FBI. And so now the CDC, of course, is our national public health agency for the United States, and it helps labs by developing tests, providing guidance, and gives us the framework of how we should proceed with testing. Excellent. All right. So each person who might work in a lab, whether it's a doctor's office, clinic, or hospital, then has a place in this larger schematic and would know or would have people there who know, for instance, which labs get done in-house and which labs get sent out. Because I think that's something that many times the clinicians aren't even aware of. Like, oh, that's a send out. I'm not going to get the results immediately. That's going to have to go somewhere else. Yes, that's a very good point. We have a um, menu of tests that we do in-house and then the other tests we have to give to reference laboratories or other laboratories to do this, I would say a little more specialized type testing. Yeah, I think it makes complete sense to most of us that every lab has not needed to test for monkeypox in the past. Right. <laughs> so here we are at a situation, though, where the U.S. is currently in the middle of a fairly substantial outbreak of monkeypox. And I just want to give a little bit of background about monkeypox before we get into the lab concerns themselves. So for those of you, like most of us, where monkeypox was a new idea, this is a virus in the orthopox family. The orthopox virus family is a big viral family, and it has a lot of viruses that affect basically animals of all kinds, mostly mammals, but there's camelpox and raccoon pox and fowl pox and a lot of what we might consider species-specific varieties. And Monkeypox is one of them, but it's sort of a misnomer because while it was found in monkeys, captive monkeys, in fact, in 1958, those poor monkeys probably got it from a rodent because this is most common in rodents in Central and Western Africa. And the first human case wasn't actually found until 1970. So to date, most of the outbreaks of monkeypox have been small and limited. Central and Western Africa, or people who have traveled to those areas. And this is where you get into that whole thing of that you may have heard on the news that there are these clades. Clade is just a term in viral families that mean that they're sort of a different version. So there's a West African version of monkeypox and a Congo basin version of monkeypox. And because of the geography there, they stay separated. But all of the current cases in the United States that have been sequenced, which means they've gone to the CDC and somebody's actually looked at the genetic material of the virus, 
All of these that have been sequenced are from this West African clade. And we'll talk more later about why that might be important. So, Carrie, I want to let you sort of explain to people, if they're talking about a suspicion of monkeypox, what kind of specimens are we talking about? Who collects them? What kind of specimen is it? Let's just start with the basics. Somebody thinks it might be monkeypox. What the heck do we do in order to figure that out? So when we're collecting the specimens, they are usually going to be specimens from the lesion. So a swab, dry swab, actually. So it's a little different than some of our other swabs, like our nasopharyngeal swabs and things like that. We actually want to collect a dry swab. The other thing that's a little different than what we've been used to lately is we want to put it in a viral transport media as opposed to a universal transport media, which is a media that most of our testing platforms have gone to. So we want to make sure that we have that viral transport media on hand. They could also go into a dry vial if we don't have that. And then they're sent for testing on the places that do those certain type of testing. As far as collection goes, and this is going to be very dependent on what kind of facility you're working in. For us in our large facility, our laboratorians don't do any of the collecting. However, if you're working in a smaller clinic, which again, a lot of monkeypox cases are being seen in the clinics, like an STD clinic or sexually transmitted disease clinic or things like that, then a lot of times it is the lab personnel collecting the specimens as well. Yep. And I just want to clarify for folks, while it's true that in this outbreak, many of these patients are being seen in sexual health clinics, it's not considered a sexually transmitted disease. Any close contact is able to transmit or very close contact is able to transmit monkeypox and most of the orthopox viruses. So it's sort of coincidental. But I think you're right, Carrie, that, that there may be people there who are not familiar with these high consequence pathogens or have most likely never seen a case of monkeypox. And so getting these specimens might be a new process. So Carrie mentioned lesions, and these things look like chickenpox. That is a completely different family of viruses. There's no actual relationship between chickenpox and monkeypox, except the pox, right? So the lesion itself looks similar. It starts as a little red area, then it gets to be a blister, then it gets to be what we call a vesicle, and then a pustule. So the actual contents go from clear to white or yellow looking, and then it opens up and it makes a crust. And it's contagious through that entire process. And so we're actually testing the pox themselves, as Carrie said, with a dry swab, like a Dacron swab that you guys might be used to for using for other specimen collection that you rub along the little lesion itself. For lab people, what are the concerns about working with these monkeypox specimens and what can they do about it? If you're working with the monkeypox lesion part or the swab itself, then it's a very different risk factor that you would have if you're working for just clinical specimens. So I want to start out talking about the clinical specimens that we'd see in our just our regular laboratories. So people are coming in, they're not feeling well. Normal battery of tests is going to be a CBC, complete blood count, as well as some chemistries. And those are going to come to the main lab. And I just want to talk about the risk factors to people in the main lab working with a positive monkeypox patient that they might not understand. Basically, the viral load is so low in those types of specimens that it is safe to work with those specimens in what we consider a biosafety level two laboratory. A biosafety level two laboratory is going to be a, a laboratory where you have some standard practices that you use. You restrict flow of 
non-laboratory personnel in there. So it's, it's kind of a separate area in the lab. People are all trained to do their work in there. You have certain kinds of protective equipment, including a biological safety cabinet or BSC. We would work with samples in that. And we have our lab coats, our gloves that we always wear when we're working with these specimens and designated workspaces. The blood that would come down from a positive monkeypox patient would just be seen in that kind of laboratory. Currently, the CDC does not recommend people need to be vaccinated to work with these types of specimens because, again, that viral load is so low with those specimens. So chances of contracting disease are pretty nominal for that. But then we talk about people that test for monkeypox itself with those lesions. And then these people, they actually do recommend having a vaccine, if at all possible. But if the lab personnel don't have a vaccine when working with this, they can do it at a BSL-2 level of safety, but they use what we call BSL-3 practices. So BSL-3 is going to be your next level up. If your lab is not one that does the testing for monkeypox virus, then we would package and ship that off to a laboratory that does that testing. And when you're doing your packaging and shipping, you have to follow the Department of Transportation has guidelines on how to package and ship everything. Currently, this clade that Jill spoke about in the beginning, we are packaging as a category B specimen. And so you have to be familiar with how to package category B specimens and ship those out. The lab doing the packaging and shipping should have the sample coming to them already collected and sealed. So you wouldn't be handling that specimen any more than just putting it into the proper containers to package and ship. Excellent. All right. So just a second to talk about category B. I guess there are a lot of things that would be category B that labs would be used to shipping out. They're not all as weird sounding as monkeypox, but you're probably used to other things that you send to a reference lab that would be packaged in the same way. Correct. Most everything that the lab sends is going to be a category B as far as testing for certain diseases. All right. And so now if I am the one, maybe my lab is a place that I do test for monkeypox. What would I do? So if your lab is one that tests for monkeypox virus, the CDC actually does recommend that you have a vaccine for testing. However, if you're not able to have personnel that have vaccine, then it is recommended to use a biosafety level three containment for that laboratory. And so biosafety level three is just going to have a little bit more protection than your biosafety level two. So it has the same standard ones that I talked about in the beginning, no eating, drinking, things like that. But then you want to perform all your testing either behind a splash shield or in a biological safety cabinet. And that's going to prevent that aerosolization that could potentially infect you. Yeah, I think that's a great point to make that monkeypox is transmitted through close physical contact. But these, just like chickenpox in some ways, this can be aerosolized. And so we think that the risk is not just, for instance, against your skin, but if you were to inhale or get this virus into your mucous membrane. So we want to protect our mucous membranes and we want to make sure we're not aerosolizing something. And you can imagine all the things that happen in a lab that actually have potential for aerosolization, like a centrifuge, or I know that I'm sorry to admit that some of us have bad habits of filling tubes, not directly from the patient, but with a syringe 
And sometimes we might overfill something and you get a little positive pressure to that too. That's a no-no, by the way, in case you can't tell by the sound of my voice that this is not something we should do. But it also transmits some risk to our friends in the laboratory. We wouldn't want to do that. So especially in these cases, this risk of aerosolization is one that we want to avoid. Yes, that's very good. And, and things on the lab bench, we have to get into those tubes of blood and people will pop the tube, which is something that, yes, it needs to be done. But that's what we do either behind a barrier or we have an absorbent material with a barrier around it to open that tube again to prevent that aerosolization. All right. Tell me a little bit about lab PPE. Those of you who know me know that I'm a big fan of PPE. I am like a, a true believer, absolutely want to spread the word that everybody should know their PPE. But tell me about lab PPE, because I'm not sure I even understand where and when and what you guys wear. So when we go into the laboratory to begin our laboratory testing, we are required to always have on our lab coats. And lab coats are going to vary from institution to institution. Our particular lab coats are beyond our knee and they are impermeable to water. And then they have elastic cuffs. And then we have to wear gloves and the gloves should go over those elastic cuffs. So there's no exposed skin. And then, of course, being in healthcare, we now wear masks all the time, which I got to admit, I really love because so many people have a habit of accidentally, mindlessly sticking pens in their mouths, even in the laboratory. And that's one of my safety pet peeves, as well as people who, you know, they go to turn the page in a book and it's dry. So they lick their finger so that they can turn that page. And I've seen that in the laboratory. So masks, I think, really help us also keeping our hands away from our mouths. So yeah. that's my little soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I am, I'm absolutely, I, I will support you on that disgust. <laughs> so how is monkeypox diagnosed for the places that are doing it? Like, what do you do to test for monkeypox? So the testing that they're currently doing is the polymerase chain reaction or PCR testing for the DNA in that pox virus. All right. So who is doing this testing for monkeypox and is it available everywhere? So it started out with the CDC, Centers for Disease Control. They first developed the test and then they distributed that to their laboratory response networks, which again are those state local public health groups, those networks. They distribute the test out to them. But just recently in the week of 622, they actually now have shipped kits to five labs. So these are commercial labs that can also do monkeypox testing. And I think a lot of that is because we learned a lot with COVID. You know, I think we all remember rolling out the test and it came along so slowly and it was a real bottleneck for us in trying to make sure we isolate and everything. We learned a lot of lessons from that. So for this particular outbreak, the CDC really stepped up and tried to make sure that they can have more labs testing, more lab testing available even outside of the public health arena so that we can hopefully contain this outbreak quicker. Okay, so it sounds like they're rolling out more testing, but does that mean if my lab gets the test tomorrow, I can order the test tomorrow, please, please, please? <laughs> well, actually, no. So laboratories have to do what we call a validation for any new tests that we're bringing into our house. We need to train the staff, obviously, to assure that they can do the testing correctly. And then we have to make sure that our testing is precise and accurate. So we actually have to test previous samples that we know the results of to make sure that we're getting those appropriate results. So there is a lag period between the time you're 
test comes in before you're ready to do the actual testing. I knew there were going to be details I was not going to be happy with, but thank you for filling us in on that. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, and that's that I guess I had not thought about how I, maybe as a nurse at the bedside in the ER or the ICU or in a clinic, kind of get the whole patient's story, right? And what we're thinking and what we're maybe suspicious of or for our providers, what's on your differential diagnosis list. But how do we communicate that? to laboratorians. I mean, I know you guys take some precautions all the time, but how can we help you understand what it is we might be looking for? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's going to be very variable by your facility on how that's communicated. Infection prevention is a huge place for that communication to start. One of the hospitals I worked at, we had weekly rounding where we would take one of our specimens and then talk about the patient itself so we could have that full picture. But to communicate the daily ones, for us here, when we have a person under investigation or PUI for monkeypox, we actually ask that they be labeled as a suspected person. And that's what we did when we first started with COVID as well, is that we had stickers on our specimens when they came down. For the monkeypox ones, we don't let them put them through our pneumatic tube system. They actually have to walk these down. And that's a place where you can communicate as you hand off the specimen. Hey, this is what we're looking at. This is what we're worried about. Here's your specimen. So there's different ways of communicating. There's the whole sequence in the lab. You have your lab director, your supervisors. And if you bring that down, then they can have the meetings with the lab staff and communicate in the lab that way as well. I love the fact that you mentioned having notifying your infection prevention and control folks, because it might be that if you're seeing a patient in your clinic or your frontline facility, your ER, and you're thinking, I wonder if this person could have monkeypox, that one of your first calls might be to infection prevention and control. Who do I need mm-hmm. to tell? What PPE do I need to wear when I'm collecting this specimen? And then letting those infection preventionists Make sure that the lab is aware and taking the precautions they need to maintain their own safety. All right. Now, these monkeypox specimens go out. Most labs are not doing them themselves, although we hear that there are more coming online. How long is the turnaround and, and what do we do with these people in the meantime? Well, the turnaround time is two to three days, but that's going to depend on when they get the specimen there. So you got to take into consideration the time it takes to ship it. Some places might only have a pickup once a day. So you might be limited if you miss that first pickup to the next day. And so at that time, you want to try and keep those patients to say quarantined. Right. I think those patients then luckily across the country right now, most of these patients haven't required hospitalization, but some might. And as Carrie said at the beginning, some of these people aren't going to feel very well to start with, and you might be getting those other labs just to make sure they're okay, right? If you have a febrile illness, you want to make sure that people's electrolytes are okay and that they don't have anything else going on. And you might, in fact, be testing for other viral illnesses like chickenpox, right? Like the flu, which we know go around all the time. So ruling those things out can kind of help direct your care for the patient while you're waiting for a monkeypox result to come back from one of these reference labs. And that does involve encouraging those patients to home quarantine. And and that's sort of a subject for another day. But the lab 
portion of that is really making sure that we're getting those specimens collected correctly, packaged safely, and then shipped off expeditiously so that we can get those results back. Now, Carrie, that's going to leave me at some point in the lab with these specimens that came from these patients, whether that's the leftovers in their blood tubes, whether they maybe drew extra tubing. Like, what do I do with, I don't really know what happens with lab waste. So that's a great question as well as the lab actually treats everything again as if it has the potential to cause us disease. So even if you have a relatively healthy patient that has had a CBC done and everything's normal on that patient, there's no infectious disease that is in their blood, we still dispose of it as if there were. So we dispose of all of our lab specimens as category B waste. And so they go into a biohazard bag. They are then either sterilized on-site or off-site, depending on your facility, before they are disposed of. So really, that stuff is pretty standard procedure for laboratorians, even if it's scaring the, even if it's scaring <laughs> yes. the bedside staff a little bit. Yes, it is very standard procedure. So I was actually a little surprised to find out it was different in the different world that I'm not used to, that bedside doesn't treat everything as infectious as we do in the laboratory. It was, it was a learning lesson for me. Yep. I think in many ways, lab safety has been a little bit ahead of perhaps a bit of the cavalier attitude that some of us have had over the years. And, you know, I think we're more cavalier with infectious diseases than we are with things like scabies or light. I mean, all those things. <laughs> all right. So we've talked about the turnaround time. We've talked about the need to ship these specimens out. And you mentioned a little while ago about the vaccine. I know that I've heard about several different kinds of vaccines, but tell me who really do you think would need a vaccine? And is that like something you'd get ahead of time? Or is this something where if somebody had perhaps handled a specimen and didn't realize that it was coming from a monkeypox case, where they would need to think about a vaccine? Yeah, so I'm going to defer to the CDC recommendations on that. So they do recommend that people do have the vaccine prior to testing. However, they do feel that even though those of us who are old enough to have had the smallpox vaccine may have some immunity, but that immunity does wane with time. So they do recommend boosters for that, but it does offer some type of protection as well. So I think that the main message about vaccines is that there are a couple different vaccines out there. They don't all have the same profile as far as safety and efficacy and risks and precautions. So it's definitely something, again, great opportunity to have a talk with your infection prevention and control department. And you should have somebody overseeing infection prevention. Even if you're coming from a clinic or primary care office, there's probably somebody who's responsible for that and who's looked at your sort of risk assessment in your facility. So I, I think it's important to use those resources to make sure that things are being handled safely. So we've talked about the specimens getting from the patient we're going to get this dry swab that's rubbed across this lesion. It's going to be put into either a dry tube or a viral transport media tube. We're going to make sure those specimens are labeled appropriately. And then our laboratorians are probably going to facilitate the packaging of that to be shipped off to this reference lab. 
And that procedure is common to an awful lot of other things. It's not just monkeypox. There might be all sorts of things that your lab uses reference lab networks for. Correct. You summed it up nicely. All right. So, Carrie, we've been talking about monkeypox, but tell me about some cases where laboratorians might have been exposed to stuff and a little bit more about those case studies. So laboratory acquired infections do happen with some diseases and we do watch for those. And these are our LAIs that their reports done on. And so far, currently, we haven't seen any reports of a laboratory acquired infection from monkeypox. So that's great news. But I did want to share some stories about some of the other pox viruses that laboratorians had been exposed to. So one of them is where there was a research technician and they were working with vaccinia virus. And this technician actually accidentally cut her finger on a cover slip. And so um, she developed a lesion a few days later and didn't relate about that cutting of her hand and having that lesion. And so she squeezed that lesion and it actually popped and splashed on her face. And then she developed a chin lesion a couple days later. And through studying and everything epidemiology, it was discovered that she actually had the vaccinia virus. And so she spread it that way. But it just, it emphasizes if you ever cut your hand in the laboratory, make sure you do report that right away. That again is our standard practice because things like that happen. The other one, is that there was a person that presented with a nodule on his second finger of his right hand and then a lesion on the third finger of his left hand. And he had been working again with the vaccinia virus. Nothing really was out of the ordinary except he had been working outside a lot and his hands were unprotected from the cold and he had some mild skin erosion. So it's just some small cuts and abrasions on his skin. And that was enough to have the virus get in and give him a disease from working with that. Now, again, you can't not have cuts and sores on your hands. That's a normal thing. But in the laboratory, we always say that you want to cover those with a Band-Aid or something because those gloves aren't going to provide the end-all barrier for these different kinds of diseases. So they are a layer of protection. But in the laboratory, we also ask that you always cover your cuts or anything else with a bandage as well as wearing your gloves. The last one I wanted to just to mention was 2013, there was a laboratory worker who reported a needle stick when they were inoculating mice with the vaccinia virus. And what happened is the person was recapping the needle. And we all know you shouldn't recap needles. That's when most of those needle sticks do happen. And there's a lot of safety devices out there now that basically don't let you recap the needle. Or you have to use a one-handed technique so you never have that issue of being able to poke yourself with the needle. All of these exposures, while not an uncommon way of exposing themselves, could be prevented as far as using your regular laboratory precautions that we always preach and we want to make sure we're practicing. Yeah, it's a great time to just reinforce the idea of lab safety about everything. So. I think one of the messages that I would like to make sure people take away is, first of all, if you're suspecting something like monkeypox, communicate that with your lab. Communicate that with your infection prevention department so they can make sure that everything's in place and that people feel comfortable with the testing that they might be doing or the testing they're preparing to be sent out. And secondly, we want to make sure that people are reinforcing those standard safety maneuvers, like Carrie said, that mean you don't 
ever recap a needle, that you're making sure that you're using your PPE appropriately and that if you have a break or breach in your PPE, that you're reporting that and taking those risk mitigation steps that are so important. If you have a cut or a needle stick or anything like that, or anything you think might be secondary to a work exposure, making sure you're reporting that through whatever your reporting structure is in your facility. Monkeypox is something new. It's something different that people might be very apprehensive about handling. But Carrie, it sounds like from your discussion today, really this fits in with an awful lot of the other things that laboratorians do every day and that the risks from monkeypox specifically should be pretty small. That is exactly right. As long as the lab is doing the risk mitigation, the things that they should normally be doing to protect the laboratorians from getting any kind of infection from anything that they're working with, setting up these splash guards, the biological safety cabinets if you have them, making sure you're wearing your gowns and gloves and wearing them appropriately. I am guilty of pushing my sleeves up on my lab coat when I get warm. So it's a habit that I don't even realize what I'm doing, but that is a way that I have exposed skin. And so really watching those things in our day-to-day practice, and especially as we see more and more of these emerging diseases. I really appreciate, Carrie, you bringing your expertise today. We're really hoping to expand a series about laboratory safety with a lot of different pathogens. Some of them might sound new to you, and some of them might be things that have been out in the world and that we just haven't been aware of. I just really appreciate all your expertise about lab and, and uh, entertaining my questions about monkeypox. It's just been a pleasure. Oh, thank you, Jill. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. For those of you listening at home, thank you for tuning in to this episode on monkeypox and testing in your laboratory. We'll hope you'll join us for future episodes on a wide range of topics, from healthcare worker safety to personal protective equipment and laboratories of all kinds. If you have any questions for us or ideas for future shows, please feel free to contact us at info at or you can find us on the web at netech.org backslash podcast. That's N-E-T-E-C dot org backslash podcast, where you can also subscribe to future episodes and find more about today's topic. We'll see you next time on Transmission Interrupted. You've been listening to Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NeTech, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Learn more at NeTech.org.